listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It's been a while since we've had another guest speaker with us. And so on this podcast, I've asked our youth pastor, Andrew Hayes, to join us uh, for the discussion. And so, Andrew, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So since we last heard from you, and I think it was when we did the atonement, different theories of the atonement, kind of tell our listeners what's been going on in your life and ministry. You've got a lot of exciting things that have been happening recently. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, I have a bunch of irons in the fire right now, but uh, what we've been doing on Wednesday nights in particular, we've been teaching through what's called the Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins, um, which is the Baptist version of the Heidelberg. And so we've been working through those question and answers on, on Wednesday nights, just trying to have the youth have a better understanding of the gospel and, and of Genesis through Revelation. Uh, like last night, we introduced the idea that Jesus is the uh, the central figure of Scripture and just mm. how all Scripture points to Jesus. And um, it was it kind of helped a lot of them make a lot of connections with the Old Testament because they get bogged down in a book mm-hmm. like Leviticus, <laughs> not really seeing how that connects to Christ. So how has that been going? Have the parents been doing catechesis with their kids? You know, uh, we, we try to do a little review each week. Uh, some, I think, are doing, going, going a little better than others. Um, you know, one of the hardest things to do with a catechism, or just any memorization for that matter, is trying to connect the, the home to the pulpit or the teaching ministry of the church. And, you know, with the, some of the youth, there is a connection, and some there is not. So, hmm. but the youth that do have the connection, it, it works pretty well for them, but the ones who maybe don't have as close as a connection we just have to review when they're here and um, after reviewing some of the first two questions of the catechism in particular which is about like the, the just kind of the summary statement of what they are studying and that's been helpful for them because um, if they don't get anything else they can at least get the i guess you could say the bare minimum good and okay. so well, and you also started teaching in public education, higher <laughs> education. Tell us what you're doing now. Yeah, so uh, I've been teaching at a local community college uh, that's near town. I've been teaching ethics and philosophy. Uh, it's been one of those interests that, you know, I can't always make my opinions known. I do hold some opinions very strongly. I, it, it's kind of hard at times for me to communicate that. But it's been, it's been good to just have the opportunity to um, – influence uh, young minds that I probably wouldn't have the chance to do otherwise. And it's been really neat to have the opportunity to work there. Um, and it's been, I think this semester I have over 70 students. So it's been keeping me really busy just trying to keep up with their correspondence and grades and papers and all the good stuff that comes with teaching. So you have more students than I do. I, I'm teaching a master's level class right now at CCU on Pauline exegesis. And so we're having to deal with N.T. Wright's view of justification versus the historic Protestant view. And that's not the topic of our podcast, but that would be a good topic um, to to talk about. That was one of their discussions this week. But we are going to address on today's podcast a question that came from a listener. I have a faithful listener named Mike. Uh, Mike, if you're listening, you know who you are. You're in Toronto, Canada. So we're thankful for those um, to our neighbors to the north who are listening to us. And um, 
on a few podcasts back, I addressed the issue of the regulative principle and talked about um, how we use the regulative principle to guide our practices, and, and especially in relation to the altar call and the sinner's prayer was the context. But I want to address a question that he asked because sometimes it is asked um, of me as a pastor, and maybe if you're listening to this, you may have had this question happen too, or maybe your church has, has dealt with it. But here's the, here's the, the question or comment that he <clears throat> gave me. He said, uh, you might be on shaky ground invoking the regulative principle. Formal local membership is not found in the New Testament. Membership was awarded to all those who repented of sin, confessed Jesus as Messiah, and were baptized. In other words, becoming a Christian makes one a member of the church. Membership initiation in a local church is fine, but I believe it is a product of denominational and societal diversity and is extra biblical. I'm willing to be corrected on this point. It's a great question. It's often asked a lot of times, why do I need to join a church? Is there a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt join a church? Uh, do we see that in the scriptures? And so what we're going to address on this podcast is basically the question, why should I join a local church? Does the Bible, in fact, teach the concept of, of membership? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a question that I think a lot of people have. Um, it's I'm sure you run into it almost every time that you go through, um, anytime you go through your new members class. But I think just at this point, um, it's helpful to, to just kind of make make a comment about things that are explicit and implicit in Scripture. Uh, you know, for example, sometimes the Bible is very explicit about things, like we're going to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, we know precisely what we're going to do because it's spelled out for us. But there's other things that are implicit in Scripture, such as doctrines, such as the Trinity. Um, you know, we never see... Like, okay, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit. We never see that laid out logically and systematically in Scripture when we have to make those deductions from what Scripture does teach. Right, and the word Trinity itself doesn't show up in the Bible. It was a construct from um, Athanasius in the, you know, around the 400s that that word actually was coined to define the, the biblical concept, the biblical truth that's there, but it's an implicit teaching. Right, and, and there's a lot of doctrines that are, are so that seem so straightforward to us now that aren't necessarily explicit. Like we can even think of God's attributes. You know, for for example, we never see God as immutable. Now we see verses that definitely teach that, but we never see it explicitly stated. So, to well, just, I, would, I would disagree with you on that. I think there are some passages that teach the immutability. Well, yeah, that's what I mean, but you oh. never see the word immutable. Oh, immutable. Okay, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah, the actual. So we're saying you can derive a doctrinal truth without seeing that word explicitly in the Scripture. So if you don't see the word church membership, it, we're making an implicit inference from the teaching of Scripture that it's a biblical concept. Right, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get at because okay. I'm not saying, I would say that there is Scripture that well, I knew that you, okay. The, the, the immutability of God, I would definitely say that. Okay. I'm just saying you're not going to see that wording. Okay, good. I was about to say, we, we need to have a discussion. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I knew that's what you believed, but um, okay, very good. Well, let's begin. Amanda, why don't you read um, a, an important passage of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 10, uh, 24 and 25. Okay, so the author of Hebrews writes, And let us consider how to stir one up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know, in the book of Hebrews, there was an issue going on in the church that we really don't know exactly all the details, but we do know that the church's 
members were having their property confiscated. Some of them were in prison. Uh, There must have been something about publicly identifying with the body that there was a group of people there that were not wanting to assemble. They were not wanting to to meet together. And so the writer addresses that head on. I think um, because the book of Hebrews, when you read it, is really addressed to uh, individuals that maybe come from a Jewish background Mm -hmm. that are being tempted to go back to Judaism and and my uh, my view is these individuals weren't meeting together with the Lord's people because they might have been thinking, hey, I go to the synagogue on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Why do I need to go on Sunday? Yeah, that could very well be it. Or it could be I don't want to identify with these people because they get thrown in jail or they get right. <laughs> or they get persecuted. But it was their habit. Their habit was not to meet together. And it's interesting that word meet together actually in the Greek. Uh, you think about the word synagogue. Um, that word actually comes from the word to assemble together. Uh, S-Y-N, when you have that prefix in the Greek language, it means together. Um, and so the Old and New Testaments were written to communities of God's people who regularly assembled or met together for such things as preaching, teaching, fellowship, worship, um, all the things that we do uh, today in our worship services. Um, in the Hebrew, uh, the, the word kahal means the called-out assembly. Uh, It's used over and over again, especially in um, Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, where God's people were called out, called together, called to assemble, uh, to to everyone to gather together, to hear the word preached, to hear the law delivered. Um, And so that word means the assembling of of the saints. And then the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, interestingly translates that Hebrew word as ekklesia, which in Greek means gathering <laughs> gathering together um it's it's an assembly again so the bible is very clear so here's an explicit teaching from the bible being part of a gathering of worship with god's people in both testaments is is a mandated reality and so i'm going to make a bold statement here um and it may it may some people may disagree with it but i think it is a sin for someone who claims to be a christian to not be actively loving his or her Christian brothers and sisters and seeking to build them up by being connected to a local church. Yeah, I think what, what we would call that is sin of omission. You know, th- we have the sins of commission that we mm-hmm. actively commit. I think that would be a sin of omission. Uh, you know, I don't know how you can fulfill Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, encouraging one another, if you're not gathering together to encourage one another. Right. I don't know how you can do that command. Right, and you also think about the biblical one another. So, I mean, love one another, serve one another, encourage one another. Pray for one another, confess sins to one another, bear one another's burdens. You really can't do that in isolation, right? I mean, because we'll, we'll talk to somebody who says, "Well, I have my church out on out, out on the lake and I'm fishing, or mm-hmm. golf course, or whatever," and they say that's my church, right? And it's like, how can you have a church by yourself? It means gathering. If you're going to have a gathering, unless you have multiple personalities, I don't know how you can <laughs> gather. <laughs> Let's stop and talk about this for a minute. I don't think this is in our notes, but I just kind of brought up. An idea. This, this, there's kind of a consumeristic mentality that we see oftentimes, where people either church hop. They'll they'll take their kids to one church on Wednesday night for activities. They'll come to Sunday morning at your, you know, at our church. They may go right. to a Bible study at somebody. So, like they may be connected to three or four different churches based upon what needs they're getting met. Or then you also have internet church where people can go and right. get their needs met on on the internet. And so. This whole idea, how is technology, how is consumerism uh, fighting against this idea of, of assembling locally with brothers and sisters in the flesh, incarnationally, to be together uh, for worship? 
you know what's interesting about all this is you look at like how people connect nowadays and a lot of um, this isn't even aren't even Christian studies that are being done. Um, these are just social psychologists, sociologists mm-hmm. are discovering that with the supposed connectivity that we have mm-hmm. in the modern age, actually people are more disconnected and lonely than they ever were. Yeah. Because um, instead of actually engaging in an in-person conversation, I'm saying things through through my phone or through the Internet. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we interact with, and you, if you guys have children that are teenagers, you're probably aware of this, you're trying to talk to your teen and they're busy texting on their cell phone. And so they're, they're not really engaged with that person that's in right. their presence, right. flesh and blood. Right, and we have a model, especially just from Jesus himself. I mean, he left the glories of heaven, came in the flesh to dwell among us and to be God in the flesh. And so I don't understand how you can actually have full-fledged worship church fellowship over a TV screen or over technology where you're not flesh and blood in each other's lives. Right. I mean, in a lot of our, conver- our a lot of our communication that we have is nonverbal. And how can I have nonverbal communication if I don't have sure. people to be around and sure. see and hear and you know, for example, I can send something sarcastic in a text message to somebody, and they're going to have no idea I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Unless they know you really well. Yeah. So, Well, there is no Bible verse, like we said earlier, that explicitly teaches thou shalt be a church member, per se. Uh, we cannot find um, an instance where we saw an official member joining a church um, at an official business meeting or however your church does it. But I think that based upon some very specific scriptures— we do see some principles, we do see some models, we do see some practices, both examples and in didactic teaching of this whole concept of church membership. Uh, the first is just the word church. We talked about the word ecclesia, the word church, uh, the called out ones, the gathering, the assembly. Um, it, it oftentimes, actually, of all the, it's, it's used a lot in the New Testament, but 93 times that word ecclesia is used, it refers to a local congregation in a specific geographic area. So what would be an example of that? Well, I mean, you look at the writings of Paul um, to the saints of Ephesus, to the churches of Galatia. You know, mm-hmm. almost any time that Paul is addressing a letter, mm-hmm. um, especially like the letters that have like a city in front of it, it's to that specific church. Yeah, to the church in Colossae, to the church in Philippi. And then you also see in Revelation to the seven churches. Yeah. It wasn't just, hey, hey, churches in Asia Minor, I'm going to address you all as one big corporate body. It was each individual church, each local church had its own right. issue. Its right. Own and, and sometimes Paul would even say, hey, I want you to share this this letter with these other folks that are nearby. So yeah. I'm giving you this letter so that you can actually take it to another church. Yeah. We'll talk about this later, but Paul also gave instructions to Titus to appoint elders um, in every church on right. the island of Crete. Um, and so it was assumed that even on the island of Crete, there were multiple local churches with multiple elders right. leading those churches. Um, you do kind of have some wording that may give evidence uh, just to, to how they kept membership rosters or how they knew who was involved. Um, and we see the word, um, the number was added, that word added. And so um, Acts 2, 24 or through 20, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. Why don't you go ahead and read that, Andrew? Okay. Uh, so I suppose, sir, for, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So beginning of the church, 3,000 people. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and in the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and eat many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who w- believed were together and had all things in common. 
and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so we have that terminology, the Lord added to their number. Now, we got a, we got a hard, firm number there, 3,000. Right. And so it wasn't just this generic, hey, who's connected, who's not? You know, somehow, and the, again, the book of Acts doesn't give us explicit details. How did they count how did those people um, be received in the fellowship? But we do know that baptism was an outward sign right. that marked them out as being members of the church. Um, I'm sure that would be another conversation for, for another day, but that was one of the, me- the, the requirements for membership, at, le- at least that it seems to be the case, that you believe, you're baptized, you're a member. Yeah, you don't ever see a non-baptized believer in the book of Acts. You just don't see it. No. And by implication... You would have no member of a church that has not been baptized. Right. So um, Acts 5.14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So it talks about, again, as you go through the book, the book of Acts, um, people are being added to the Lord. They're being added to the church. Um, Acts 11.24. Uh, yeah, it, it says this. For he, and a great many people, this is 24B, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Yeah, so you kind of see this. And after a while in Acts, they stopped giving numbers. I mean, it's like right. 3,000, 5,000, and it's like people. people. <laughs> but, but they were added yeah. to the Lord. An interesting passage of Scripture is in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul gives instructions to Timothy in Ephesus, especially as he's the local pastor there, Timothy is, on how to take care of widows— um, and you've got an interesting, the ESV gives an interesting word there. Um, why don't you read First Timothy 5, 9? Yeah, it says, let a wind- widow, not window, but a let window. a window be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Okay, let the, the widow be enrolled. Um, obviously, I mean, we can go back and look at the, that Greek word enrolled, but I think it means somehow they kept a list of those who were in the church that needed to be ministered to. Not all the widows in Ephesus were on that list. It was only those that were connected to that church. Yeah, it suggests, it, at least it would seem to suggest that there's some church program that's out there trying to meet the needs of widows. Yeah, and, and they were recognizable. They were on some type of list. They were identifiable right. to where Timothy or whoever the pastoral leadership was could know who was charged to them in their flock. So the first thing that we really see is that the, the concept of the local church. Now, we may need to make a distinction at this time, and maybe, Andrew, you can explain what's the difference between the church local and the church universal or the church visible or the church invisible. <laughs> right. So, so the, the local church is that group of believers that would identify themselves within a certain local area, such as like our church, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Like I am a part of that church. Now, we're, we have in, in our church, even within our church, we know that we have unregenerate people. Uh, we have unregenerate people that maybe identify themselves with that visible, physical church that they're going to. Now, the church invisible or universal church is the believers from all times at all places and all over the world. And so, um, you know, it's, there's that invisible church mm-hmm. that we have where it is all the believers. So you're saying you're Catholic? <laughs> yeah. Well, Catholic I'm in just, that sense, yeah. With a, low, with a small C. Yeah, the little, yeah, small and, C and actually, historically, the word Catholic just means universal. Right. The, not the Roman Catholic Church, but the word Catholic, lowercase c, just means the church universal. All believers at all times, 
when we get to heaven, we're not going to have local churches anymore. We're going to be the redeemed right. the, the so church. We're going to worship people from the, with people from the third century. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah. Another thing, and this is really important that we see, is how to um, carry out or exercise church discipline. Now, you may be in a church that does not exercise church discipline. Um, we, as a church, have a church discipline policy. I've been in two churches where we've had to go through church discipline. And so in order to be able to do church discipline, you really need to know who the members are that you're disciplining. And you also need to know who the members are that can actually carry out the discipline. So Jesus gives us some very explicit instructions in Matthew chapter 18. And then Paul gives some explicit instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So let's first of all read Jesus's um, words to us in Matthew 18. Jesus says, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. There's a lot that, we can be, that we're going to say about this, but just uh, one observation. This is one of the few instances where Jesus himself uses the word church. Right. Um, and it's twice in the book of Matthew, um, on this rock I will build my church. And here he says talking about the church. And so obviously it had to be a local, a local body of believers because is that – It's just – I mean you think about like how, how can we at Sterling, Colorado, how can we go – take care of a church that's in South Africa. Yeah, exactly. We can't discipline a member there. Just, yeah. it just, we are unable to do that. And so Jesus gives steps here. The best way to illustrate this is I want to talk about, in my former church, we had to exercise church discipline um, against a man who was a serial adulterer. Um, he had committed multiple accounts of adultery against his wife and his three young daughters and it came to the attention of a couple of church members that, that kind of observed this. And they, they, they did the right thing. Um, a brother went to him and exposed his sin and confronted him and said, Listen, you're sinning against the Lord. You're committing adultery. You need to repent. I'm going to you first. Um, the guy wouldn't repent. The brother went back to him a second time and said, Listen, I've, I've, you know, I've come to you twice now. I've shared with you my concerns. You really need to repent. If you don't, I'm going to have to bring somebody else in. Well, he didn't repent and says, I don't want to do, you know, I want to continue the affair, I, I, you know. Right. So this guy brings two others with him, approaches this man, same thing, you need to repent. If not, we're going to take this before the pastor. Well, at this time, they haven't even told the pastor. Well, at this point, he still wouldn't repent. They went and brought it to our pastor. I was a youth pastor at the time. Pastor went and talked with him. He still said, I'm going to go do what I want to do. Well, basically, it ended up where we had to tell him that we're going to bring this before the church. And so a letter was sent out telling, you know, explaining what was going on. We had to have a church meeting. And basically, um, he was not willing to repent. And at that point, we as a church had to exercise church discipline to rescind his membership and basically to treat him as a non-believer and basically say he's not welcome at the communion table. And um, so the important thing was that he was a member. He wasn't an attender. Right. He was a member. So we as leaders and we as a church had a covenant right because he had joined in covenant membership with us as a church to be able to discipline him. And with a recognizable membership, we were able to invite only those to the members meeting who had a say in it to be able to exercise that church discipline. 
Right. You're going to have to have to know what body of believers I'm accountable to because at church discipline is a privilege. Sometimes we think of it as, oh, man, I have to go through church. But actually it's a privilege that, yeah. that we happen to have as church members that we have a group of believers that love me enough to confront me when I am in unrepentant sin. Yeah. And we had to do it here at Emmanuel. Um, and maybe you can kind of ex- – do you remember that process, Andrew? You maybe explain right. I, you know, something similar was uh, happened, similar to your situation, where he was confronted in private several times, and, um, and then even by groups of elders and leadership. And then eventually it came before the church, and the church membership um, had to decide what to do with this particular man. And so um, it was a very similar instance where this, this man had been divorced and remarried many times and was seeking another divorce in – for really no good reason. There was no biblical grounds for divorce. And because of that, he was being confronted uh, with his sin, and he wasn't repentant, wasn't willing to change. Well, what was the good thing that happened, though, is what he actually showed up at the members' meeting, right, he and, and he stood up and he repented in front of everybody and held himself accountable to the elders. So we didn't have to go the full, like we didn't have to go, like we didn't have to exercise church discipline to the point of excommunication, but it got to the point where it was told it to the church. Right. And, and notice what Jesus says, um, Tell it to the church. If he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. We told it to the church, but he listened to the church. He listened to the body. He made himself accountable. And so at that point, we didn't have to go further. Now, we had an action plan, didn't we, of how we had to follow up with him and some steps that he needed to take. And so it wasn't just a free pass. It was some major accountability. Um, right. But we only invited, we only sent the letter out to members. Only members were allowed to come. I mean, non-members could come, but they couldn't have a vote. Um, and so it, it just, church discipline, in order to do it correctly, you really need to have a formal membership to know who's in and who's out. Yeah, because you need to know who I, who's accountable and who is not. You know, for example, if we just have a non-Christian visitor who maybe comes four weeks, they're not, mm-hmm. we can't bring them through the same process. And so we need to have a, an understanding of who belongs to our church and who does not. Right. And, and let me give you another example from our church. And you may remember this well, Andrew. We had a gentleman who had been disciplined at two other churches in town. Right. Basically, he got kicked out of one and got formally disciplined by the elders of another church in town, a church that we're very close with as far as um, our doctrine, theology, and friendship and no, you know, friends with their pastors and elders. And so he started coming to Emmanuel, and he went through the membership process, and he wanted to be a member. And we as elders said, you're more than welcome to attend, but because of your past and your disciplinary actions at these other churches, we're not going to allow you to be a member. And he caused a lot of problems. Right. And we, in a way, I think we disciplined him, but it wasn't disciplining him in front of the church. We had to do a lot of elders and deacon stuff behind the scenes to do a lot of damage control. Um, but we kind of guarded the front gate by not even la- allowing him to be a member. Right. I mean, because sometimes people like this will kind of go church to church and be kicked out of different churches. And at some point, um, as a church, you're like, look, you can't be a member here until things are right from that church that you left. Yeah. And I called those pastors and elders and I said, can you tell me the situation? They said, we can't tell you all of it out of confidence, but it's not been reconciled. Right. I mean, he's still under discipline. And so that was all we needed to hear was that it wasn't it hadn't been reconciled or resolved at the former church. Right, and I think that's healthy when churches are able to work together yeah. like that oh, yeah. because otherwise people are just going to move move church to church whenever they're in trouble. Well, and that's the benefit of, like, at least one of the benefits we have here in Sterling is I pray with six other pastors every Wednesday. I mean, the evangelical pastors in town, and we know who's, who's church hopping <laughs> right. and who's, who's mad and who's going to whose church and stuff. And we try to confront those people, and, we, and we, it's, 
it's really kind of calmed down in the past five years since we've been doing that. There's not been as much freedom of our members to do that because they know the other pastor is going to hold them accountable and take, you know, direct them back to us and we direct them back to them. Um, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul says, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now that basically means that either what, whether it was incestuous or stepfather or whatever, there's some type of illicit sexual relationship going on. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit, and, if, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And it goes on to talk about basically you know, casting him out because God judges the outside, um, purge the evil person from among you. But notice that it says when you're assembled, verse 4, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord, when you come together as a church. Right. Um, again, this is an, an, an issue of exercising church discipline. And I'm assuming that it had, it had gone past the stages of where Jesus said private, private, because right. Paul's saying, hey, the whole church knows about it and nobody really cares and you're just kind of being arrogant. This needs to be taken care of very quickly. Right, yeah, and I think, um, you know, it's, again, kind of goes back to that accountability question. Um, sometimes we tend to see accountability as a negative thing, but there's the positive, you know, the positive side of accountability is that um, I have people who are going to care about me enough, who love me enough, mm-hmm. that are going to uh, confront me when yeah. needed. And if I'm not accountable to anybody, then nobody's going to call me out when I do sin. Yeah, that's very good. Um you know, oftentimes the Bible speaks about the church assembling together in one place. First uh, Corinthians fourteen twenty three. Uh, Therefore, the whole church comes together. Um, talking a little bit more about prophecy and speaking in tongues, but Paul's talking about the church in Corinth. When you guys all gather together, so obviously they needed to know who was part of the assembly right. that gathered together. So we've seen number one that almost all the times that it talks about church, ecclesia in the New Testament, it refers to a local church um, with some type of role system where people knew who, who was in and who was out. Number two, you really can't exercise church discipline faithfully without some type of formal membership. But I think, thirdly, pastors and el- us as pastors slash elders, we're given the major responsibility of oversight of the flock, and it becomes very important to know who's in our charge, who we're accountable for, um, how we're to minister, because there's a lot of passages of Scripture that talk about the responsibility of elders. So uh, let's read Acts 20, uh, 28 through 31. Do you have that, Andrew? Uh, if not, I can read it. <laughs> um, 28 through 31? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care Uh, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So uh, I guess... In that uh, in that little pa- in that passage there, you know, it's uh, just t- telling these elders because Paul had called these elders to him because he was in a particular 
mm-hmm. location. He called for the elders from Ephesus yes. to yeah, come a couple, talk to him. Yeah, a couple of things. In verse 17, if you back up, it, it, Paul is addressing the elders in Ephesus, a group of men who were responsible for leading that particular local church. So you see local church government. And just a side note here. I was on a Facebook thread the other day where um, there was a big argument about elders and pastors and that the big rage in the Southern Baptist Convention with elder-led churches is in violation of the Baptist faith and message. Let me just throw down some Greek here real quick. In verse 17, it's addressed to the elders. That Greek word is presbyteros. And then in verse 28 here, it says... Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's a different Greek word there. It's episkopos, overseer, bishop. So these are elders, they're overseers. And then the word to care for is the, it's actually to pastor. It's the Greek poimeo, which is the verb form, which means to care for or to shepherd the flock. And so interchangeable pastor, elder, overseer, they're all synonymous for the same office. Um, and so when you talk about a pastor, it's basically you're talking about an elder. Um, and so and, just, and I guess what gets me is if it's a singular elder, why address it to the plural elders overseers? I mean, yes. it's, it's and a it was, plural. Yeah, and it was in a local church. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the elders, the overseers, were charged by Paul there in Ephesians before he leaves to go to Jerusalem to shepherd the flock, to care right. for the flock, to, to protect the flock from false doctrine. First um, Timothy five seventeen, um, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'm not particularly fond of the ESV translation. I think they've got a little bit of a Presbyterian um, flavor um, because Presbyterians have ruling elders. Um, at our church, we don't have ruling elders. We have um, we're an elder-led church, and I think there's a difference. And I, let me just talk about this because I think there's a lot of confusion out there. Uh, the Presbyterian model sees a actually the Presbyterian model sees a difference between ruling elders and teaching elders. They have two classes of elders, right. even among elders, um, but they are not as congregationally led as Southern Baptist churches are with elders. They, the elders rule. They make most of the decisions. Um, there's an outside presbytery that they're accountable to. Right. Uh, most of the authority is vested in that group of men. Um, we're not like that at Emmanuel. We are an elder-led church where most of the decisions are led by the elders, but we still have congregational approval. We still have votes. We still have – they can vote us out if they right. want to. Um, and so that Greek word there, rule, is actually proestemi is the Greek word, and it really means to stand in front of or to lead. It carries two nuances of meaning. It really means to provide leadership, but it also carries the idea of servant leadership. And so um, elders are to to, to lead well, to serve by leading well. Right, and the question is, if I'm leading, i got to be leading someone. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's my my flock that Paul was talking about earlier in Acts. I'm leading my my flock. Yeah. And if I'm going to have a flock... I have some that are in my flock and some some that are probably in a different flock. Right. And i got to be able to know the difference between yeah, them. And, yeah, so, for example, um, we've got First Baptist, so Pastor John at First Baptist, Pastor Dan at the Brian Church, Pastor Ben at the Foursquare Church, Pastor Roger at the Assembly of God, uh, Pastor Bill at the Nazarene Church, um, Pastor Young over at Calvary Baptist. Am I, are, are we as elders responsible for the body of Christ at First Baptist? 
Uh, no, no. That, would, that would be really bad. That would be, but, yeah. I mean, so we are not – now, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, and right. we love them. And if we see them in the community, we have a – you know. but I'm not responsible to oversee the souls or to shepherd or to minister to the needs of all the believers in Sterling. Right. Just the ones that God has entrusted to us at Emmanuel. Um, in First Thessalonians five twelve, Paul says, "We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you." That word, "who are over you in the Lord," is the same Greek word that he used back in First Timothy five seventeen about leading. And so, shepherds, elders were called, were charged to lead a particular flock. And I think the most important passage that talks about this um, is Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Yeah, and the author of Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That that one as a leader, that's kind of one of those like, oh man, I better be doing a good job. Well, here's a couple things. Number one, when it says obey your leaders, that word obey really more in the Greek means trust. Trust and submit to your leaders. What's our responsibility? Our responsibility is to watch over the souls. But notice what he says of those that will have to give an account. So if I don't have a recognizable membership, a very defined membership of who I'm supposed to be watching over the souls of and giving an account of, it makes it very difficult for me as an elder to know exactly who it is I'm to minister to. And I've often been asked this question because we talk about this in our new members class. And um, somebody will say, well, if I don't ever become a member, does that mean you'll never visit me in the hospital or you'll never... Never, and I said, no, that's not what it means. If, if, as long as you connect yourself to Emmanuel, we'll minister to you. We'll pray for you. We'll visit you in the hospital. But there's something about formally, officially connecting yourself and membership to a local body. Because what you're saying is, I'm willingly putting myself under the authority of these particular elders and this church and their doctrine. Right. You know, uh, I think it's maybe helpful to think of a, maybe a, an analogy, a relationship analogy, when we begin to think about that. that for example, like when I um, – a lot of times we think of like the emotion, the love preceding the covenant. But a lot of times, like you think of like marriage, the, the covenant itself is the thing that preserves and maintains that love. Mm-hmm. And so that need for a covenantal relationship with a local group of believers is that thing that sustains us when maybe we are fighting. Right. And I think that a lot of people are afraid of that word covenant because they don't want to fully commit themselves to a local body because either they've been burnt in the past, uh, they don't want to they don't want to be accountable, they don't want to be vulnerable, they want to check in and you know when they want to, they don't want to be having to be there every Sunday, not that we're being legalistic about that, but I think some people fear the accountability because it means they're accountable. Right. And I mean, but it's very important to have that covenantal relationship with other believers, because if I don't have that, then what's to guarantee, like, who's to say what church is what church, and we can just ebb and flow, kind of go wherever we want, and we're going to be really hesitant then to commit to any kind of relationship, because yeah. I'm not assured that there's a, a promise or some sort of guarantee that we have between each other. Right, exactly. And Joshua Harris, a few years back, maybe 10 years back, wrote the book, Stop Dating the Church, right. Fall in Love with the Body of Christ. And I think a lot of people do date. They date the church. They, they never actually commit into a covenant membership. They'll kind of, you know, try things out. And, and, we, and we, we have it here at Emmanuel. I right. mean, we've had people that 
have come for years that have never actually formally joined the church for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes it's theological because they, they might agree with mo- most of our theology, but there might be parts they don't, so they don't join for that reason. But other times, it I, I don't even know sometimes why some well, people Well, one of the ones that's interesting in um, – we're we're in a we're in a community where there's a lot of Catholic and Lutheran and Methodist backgrounds where people were uh, baptized as infants, right? Um, and so some people have a hang up of getting baptized by immersion because they felt like you know I've been a Christian my whole life, and if I get baptized now, that means that maybe I wasn't a Christian or something. And so I think there's also that fear of standing before people for public baptism. Um, it's interesting. The second, the second half of that verse, it says, "Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you." And so, there's this mutual—I uh, guess you can use the word—symbiotic relationship between elders and congregants, to where um, we, we are to serve and love and protect. Um, it's not blind obedience that they're to give to us, but we're no. to serve, love, servant leadership. Um, we're accountable for their souls. We'll give an account. We'll stand before God on the day of judgment of how we did. Um, but then the responsibility puts back on the congregation that, hey, make it easy for your pastor to do that. Make right. it make it be a joy for him. You know, you know, serve him and some, you know, submit to his leadership or their leadership. Yeah, you know, and it's a it's one of those things where you know formal um, church membership, um, kind of going back where we started. It's not necessarily explicit in Scripture, but I think from the passages that we were looking at, you know, you know, when you think about the the leadership, like how are we to lead if we don't know who we're leading? Um, it seems to be implied that there's a group of people that I'm leading, and I got to know who they are. Um, and then just the adding to our number, this enrollment of widows, um, church discipline, these things imply some sort of church membership. Right, and what we're doing here is we're in, we're building a systematic theology of church membership based upon text that built. I mean, I mean so we're we're taking implicit teachings stacking them up together looking at the you know the consistency of them and saying from this emerges what we believe the bible affirms as the importance of church membership there's one other passage of scripture um, first peter 5 2 through 3 and peter says to the elders shepherd the flock of god that's among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge. It's very interesting. That word in the original language is almost the word allotments. And it's this idea that God has sovereignly allotted to elders their particular congregation. Right. So I've been allotted this flock. I've not been allotted the Berean Church, First Baptist, the Foursquare. That's not who God has allotted to me to shepherd. And so when you look at how even how God's sovereignty works in allotting you to a, to a group of elders, um, formal membership really helps that process. Right. And I, I guess I can tell you tell from personal experience when I was a college student. Um, I didn't really. I was in a Christian college, but I didn't really join a local church. And I look back, and I can say, look, and I can say it definitively. When I did not join a local church, it's probably the farthest away from the Lord that I lived. Hmm. When I was not actively involved in a specific local church, because at the time I'd go to one place for a couple weeks and another place for another couple weeks, and nobody was really holding me accountable yeah. at a church. And because of that, I I strayed, and I didn't have the 
Uh, it's kind of weird, but it's I have those eyes that are on me that I know that are keeping me accountable. Yeah. I didn't have that in college, and because of that, I strayed farther than I should have. Yeah, and I bet you, you answer this, Andrew. How, how you know based upon your experience? But did you think because you were going to a Christian college and you were probably going to Bible studies and hearing theology that that was kind of taking the place of church, or that was kind of? The, I mean, that's how I justified it. Yeah. Um, in, deep down, I knew I needed to join, but uh, I was lazy. I just didn't want—I didn't want to have to put in the effort and put mm-hmm. one th- more thing on my mm-hmm. to-do list. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think that was mostly it—is I was just being lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of churches suffer from a pretty poor ecclesiology. Um, the whole non-denominational movement, um, you know, Calvary Chapel is a non-denominational denomination. I mean, they pride themselves on being non-denominational. But it's interesting because um, I'm nothing against Calvary Chapel. They, I, I have a lot of friends in the Calvary Chapel movement, and they really value expository preaching. But they, two things that they don't have in their polity, they don't have official membership, and they don't have an elder structure. Right. And, I, and I look at that, and I think, you know, how does that... I mean, it seems like a recipe for chaos. It seems like a recipe for consumerism where I'm going to come, I'm going to hear the main guy preach. I'm going to enjoy the worship, but then I'm going to leave and not be accountable to anybody. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, I I know that accountability is a very positive force. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, without accountability and and just a group of believers that are going to consistently hold me accountable for my conduct and behavior, my Christian walk, that is going to, if, if I don't have them where we started, encouraging us to to have those good works, if I don't have somebody doing that, I'm probably not going to be doing it. I need somebody to help encourage me to do the right thing. And maybe I'm doing the right thing, but I need somebody to come right. alongside and encourage me to keep doing it. Well, and also, too, think about how much accountability is built into other areas of life besides church. I mean, if you join the Rotary Club or you join any type of civic organization, right. you're required to pay your dues, to show up at meetings. I mean, we require a whole lot more people and just in civic organizations than a lot of churches do, you right. know, in their, in their church life. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand how you can, would join a ch- so-called join, join a church but never show up. I don't know how, how you can say you're a part of something that you never participate in. It just doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also a, a danger of we don't want to be legalistic and say that, you know, if you become a member, you have to be in church every single Sunday and you never can be out. But we do in our membership process. And it may be helpful for those that are listening. Let's talk about our membership process, because when I was growing up in the traditional Southern Baptist church, you walked forward at the end of the altar call and you presented yourself right. and said, I want to join this church. And you filled out the little pink card and the, some lady helps you or some deacon helps you. And they presented you and said, so-and-so is coming by virtue of letter from so-and-so Baptist church. Let's, if they want to join them in the membership, let's give them a hearty <laughs> amen. And then, you know, you're yep. in there. And so, you know, th- that's kind of the old school way of doing it. We have a process now where we have a seven-week Discovering Emmanuel class where we talk about, doctrine we talk about our polity we talk about our mission um, we talk about these these deep things because we want people to have a full understanding of who we are before they make a decision right and you could in some ways if maybe think of it as like a courtship you know it's like if i'm going to be a part of this i want to know what i'm getting into exactly and i tell my class said listen you know i'd rather lay all our cards on the table now and tell you what we believe than for six months down the road you'd be like you believe what i mean you <laughs> right. guys believe that you believe in unconditional election? How come we didn't talk about this? Well, last week we did. We talked about unconditional election in our class, and <laughs> yeah. some of you struggled, and we talked about regeneration preceding faith, and some of you... So I mean, we talk about those types of things, but we want to lay those cards out on the table. 
Right, and, and just the expectations for what expected, what they need to, what we expect of them, and what they can expect from us, the body that they're joining, and that needs to be laid out ahead of time. Because if we're not explicit, laying out all those expectations, then that's going to be just a recipe for uh, some sort of conflict yeah. later down the road. Yeah, and what we do is, like, when the class is over, they get a questionnaire that asks them, you know, basically tell me, tell us your testimony, tell us what the gospel is, tell us if you've been baptized, you know, what member of a church. If you're coming to our church, you know, why are you leaving your church? Any other questions you want? And so what we do is once those all come in, we divide them up among elders. And you guys go and, I guess, interview interview them. them, And then we all come back as elders to say, okay, I hate to say it, they they meet the mustard or they they, they pass the, you know, they, they show evidence of regeneration. They're on board with our doctrinal statement. They have signed our church covenant. Um they can be unfolded. And now one thing that's been very helpful, two summers ago, two summers ago when the Obergefell and Hodges case came down, right. um, before that even came down, we as a church were prepared. And so we actually had to amend our constitution and had to put in a statement on gender, marriage, and human sexuality. Right. And so that was helpful because all of our members had to vote on that. It was it was a free it was it was very freeing for me to know that we had the backing of our entire church supporting us and people willing to sign their names on that and say that they were willing to you know own up to what our doctrine is especially on that very sensitive subject and we require new members to sign off on that um, in addition to our church covenant and so I mean it's higher levels of accountability and maybe people aren't as easy to float in and out um, but I can tell you from the twelve and a half years I've been here. We have not had any major false doctrines because I think we closed. We make it very difficult for somebody to get in and to, I guess, push their weight around. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I'm always worried when somebody attends the first time. Um, you know, they, they, maybe they've been in our church two or three weeks and they come up <laughs> to me and say, "Hey, I want to start teaching." Yeah, it's like, wait, I don't know you. I don't know your family. I don't know your theology. I don't know if you're a qualified teacher or not. So. Let's put on the brakes. You need to become a member first. Yeah, and we had a guy that did that. This happened twice at Emmanuel. We had a guy, and he moved here from Chicago, I think. Um, and, he, and actually, they lived in Sydney because he was working for Cabela's. And um, this was before you came in. I think it was when we were in our old building. And um, the very first time I met him, he was like, so when am I going to be able to teach an adult Sunday school class? And I'm <laughs> like, well, let, like you said, let's let's you know back off on this. Yeah, let's hit yeah. the brakes for a minute here. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, you know, and so you, you'll, you'll have issues like that where people um, will want to, well, I'd say this, let me, let me make a statement. The more loosey-goosey your polity is, the more you're going to attract people that are going to take advantage of that, and it's going to cause problems. Right. Whether it's church splits, whether it's gossip, whether it's um, undermining leadership, whether it's false doctrine, I think the the more structured your polity, and I mean, we have a system, we have a structure, we've got a process people go through, we've got forms they've got to fill out, they've got right. covenants they've got to agree with, they've got doctrinal statements, and it may, for some of our listeners, that may sound legalistic, like why are you making people go through so many steps? We're really not asking them to do anything that is unbiblical. Because we're just trying to do our best as elders to ensure that every single person we take into membership, number one, shows evidence of conversion. Mm-hmm. Number two is in agreement with our doctrinal statement. Number three is in agreement with our 
marriage, gender, and human sexuality, and then they're on board with, you know, just the vision and the direction of the church. And, well, and I think every pastor, every leadership was going to w- wants that. Well, and it makes sense to me. Like we are charged to protect the flock, mm-hmm. and unless you have some procedures and policies and classes and things in place to protect the flock and to gauge who comes in, who's a sheep and who's a wolf, mm-hmm. if you don't have anything like that. That's when you're going to end up wolves, ta- you know, taking advantage of a bunch of sheep. Yeah. So part of our job as elders and and leaders is to guard the flock that God has entrusted us, and that means that we have to have some procedures and some um, some policies and some yeah. things that are in place to protect the flock. Yeah. And there may be some of our listeners that aren't in an elder-led church. You're probably. I have a lot of Southern Baptist listeners that are from very um, traditional Southern Baptist backgrounds, where you may have a single pastor, maybe a staff. And then it's weird the way Southern Baptist churches work that are traditional. You've got a senior pastor, maybe a staff, then you've got deacons, and then you've got a church council, and then you've got committees. So you've got a personnel committee that makes right. decisions on personnel. Then you've got a finance committee that makes decisions on finances. Then you've got a church council that meets together to do calendaring. Then you've got the deacons that do this over here. And then you've got the pastor and his staff. You've got like eight different groups making decisions for the life of the church. I'm just thankful we're in a church where we have elder-led leadership where we can lead right. biblically and the church is on board but uh, you know there may be some listeners that that don't have the privilege or some pastors that don't have the privilege of having a plurality of elders and um, i would just encourage you um, I, I don't really know what to tell you as far as you know don't don't leave your church obviously but um just pray that god would would lead you and lead your church to embrace a more biblical form of polity i know that's hard because in the southern baptist convention it's very entrenched in a certain type of polity Right. But I, you know, the question always is, is what does scripture teach? And it seems when we study scripture, it seems to talk about a plurality of elders leading specific local churches. Yep. And the congregation following that leadership, not blindly, and also ultimate, ultimate authority rests in the congregation. Right. Ultimately. Um, it's not the, the ultimate authority. Ultimate, ultimate authority rests in Christ. Christ is a senior pastor of the church. Um, but what we're saying is that the human authority, the elders don't have ultimate authority. We are spiritual leaders who are charged to oversee the flock. But ultimately, the congregation has to yeah. affirm, vote. And that's the importance of theology, biblical preaching, expository preaching. When you do that faithfully week in and week out, your people are discipled. Right. And they know what the truth is. Well, and that's one of the helpful things with uh, having – this is why I think it's congregational-led is, is best because, you know, there's lots of individuals who think they're called to ministry. But I think it's important for, like, a local church body to recognize, you know what, I see that call in you, that God mm-hmm. has appointed you into ministry. And then that is a great confidence that some mm-hmm. – it's not just me, but my church family is saying, yeah, I see that in you. Yeah. Yeah, that's very good because a lot of times you need that confirmation. And same thing with spiritual gifts. I mean, you may not know that you have a certain gift mix or whatever, but the congregation can come alongside and confirm that in right. you and provide mutual care. They can provide fellowship. So there's a lot of – we didn't even talk about the benefits of being part of a local church, just you know what the benefits are. That's probably maybe for another podcast because we're getting up to the hour mark. Um, Andrew, is there anything else you want to say on this podcast about church membership? I, I think this has been a good discussion. <laughs> I, I appreciate join, your insights. Join a church. Join, <laughs> join a, a church, church. Become a member. I think. Let's qualify that. Good church. Join a Bible-believing, solid, conservative, evangelical church. Um, yeah, don't don't join a cult in town like. <laughs> yeah, <that>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got some crazies. <laughs>
Well, very good. Well, thank you, Andrew, for being on the podcast today. We'll probably have to invite you back soon for another one. It's been a good conversation. If you have questions about polity or questions about church membership or you uh, just need some encouragement, I did have some phone calls this week with some listeners to try to walk them through and help them and encourage them the best I could on some areas um, that they were dealing with in church life. I love to do that. Um, I've helped a lot of churches in our state convention um, transition to an elder type polity. And so I've got some experience in that. And so um, if you need help, just go to seancole.net. You can find all my contact information there. Uh, You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, We put all of the podcasts up there as well as uh, some sermons from um, Emmanuel Baptist Church as well as the teachings are there. Um, And you can contact me through that as well. So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. We appreciate the time you take to listen to our podcast. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And may you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.